0: Can this be the Christ? That question that we see in this passage today in John chapter 4, asked by the Samaritan woman at the well, but also, really, this question is also asked by millions of other people throughout history. In fact, an estimated 250 million people have asked this question just in the last 99 years. See, you probably know, Billy Graham died this past week at age 99, and his organization um, estimated that he preached in person over his lifetime to 250 million people, in person. That's not to speak of those who watched him on television beginning in the 1950s my own grandmother, my father, were saved as a result of watching a Billy Graham crusade on TV in sometime in the late 50s, early 60s. So I could say that I owe my salvation to the one person who preached to my grandmother the good news when my father was still in junior high. No one has been as influential over the past hundred years for the cause of Christ than Billy Graham. No one. And I would argue uh, even against some of his methods. I don't think the Bible supports some of his ecumenicism that he was involved in, for example. Yet I also thank God for the ministry of Dr. Graham and owe my salvation to his ministry. In 1963, Billy Graham asked Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, whom I have enormous respect for, if he would chair the first worldwide congress on evangelism. Lloyd-Jones said that he would gladly do it if only Dr. Graham would stop including liberals and Roman Catholics in his crusade platform, on the platform and in his staff. And as they discussed this, they talked for three hours but Graham refused to agree to this, and so Dr. Lloyd-Jones said that he could not offer any support or endorse Graham's campaigns. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones had a high regard for Billy Graham, but he separated from him formally because of his association with others. And and actually, on those grounds, I agree with Dr. Lloyd-Jones, and yet I, as I said, trace my own spiritual lineage, so to speak, back to Billy Graham. I'm grateful for him and his ministry. Probably will not see another evangelist like Billy Graham, at least in our lifetime. He is sort of a a once-in-a-millennium type of evangelist, maybe more than that. Yet the work of evangelism has to continue. It will continue. It must continue. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church that Christ is building in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 and 12 Paul tells us that he gave apostles prophets evangelists pastor teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ so evangelism is a spiritual gift given to us by Jesus himself given to the church by Jesus but but like the gift of say hospitality evangelism is also commanded. Not only is it a gift, it's also a command, whether we are specially gifted for it or not. So to say, I don't have the gift of evangelism as an excuse for, for not sharing the reason for the hope that is within you, often means, really, I don't want to share the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm afraid of that. or really, is to disregard as not applicable to me Jesus' plain teaching in John chapter 4. So let's read this now in John chapter 4, verses 23 to 38. We've been working through this whole section of the woman at the well, and I want to pick it up in the middle here, beginning in verse 23 that we looked at last week. Jesus says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? And to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that the sower and the, and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Let's just stop right there. Let's pray one more time. Father, again, we ask that you would give us what we need today. That you would feed us from your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you remember, um, a few weeks ago, when we started this chapter, I said that it 's divided up kind of into into three different sections there 's the conversation, the exposition, and then response so so the first section again is is conversation it 's really verses one through twenty seven we 've spent a few weeks looking closely at the the conversation that Jesus has with the woman at the well we 're going to finish that section here in a, with a few final important uh, comments that that they make to each other in this conversation. We'll finish that up here this morning. The second section, which we're also going to look at today, is actually verses 31 to 38. And I call this section the, the exposition, because Jesus will, he will expose to his disciples what this whole scene means, what is happening here. And he's going to teach them just exactly what's going on and what he's doing. And then, of course, the final section of this passage is actually those two smaller sections put together. It's, it's verses 28, 29, and 30, and then verses 39 to 42, and we call that the, the response. It's, the, it's really the response of both the, the Samaritan woman in the first part and then the, the Samaritan townspeople there in that last part. We will just touch on her response today, and then, Lord willing, we'll go back on this more in-depth next week. But first, let's catch the tail end of Jesus' conversation with this woman. So, back in verse 19, she has stated, the woman at the well here has stated, that she believes Jesus to be some sort of prophet. And that's not a word that they would throw around easily like, like we do today. See, by calling him a prophet... She is ascribing to Jesus some kind of authority. Clearly, she doesn't understand what he has been saying to her. Namely, again, verses 23 and 24, which says, But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. She doesn't understand what he's saying when he says God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so her response to what he says in those verses is actually pretty clear. It's verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. She's, she's almost saying, whatever, someone will explain all of this to us. But Jesus, Jesus had to pass through Samaria, Remember? The Father seeks people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. The Son came to seek and save those who were lost. And so Jesus, once again, doesn't let her off the hook with this answer in verse 25. Her, so, someone will explain it to us. The Messiah will explain it to us someday. Now, what she doesn't understand, really, that she is acknowledging that she doesn't understand, is the idea of worship without regard to place. Worship without temple or shrine. We talked about it last week. At one time, uh, I had a church secretary say to me, you cannot worship without an organ. She was deadly serious. Deadly serious. You cannot worship without an organ. But Jesus says you can One of the most moving worship services I ever went to um, was one in which we sang psalms, the psalms. They were set to to some tune of familiar hymns. We've done this here occasionally. But in this case, we we actually sang a cappella. It was incredible. It was beautiful. I loved it. But there's often pushback to any kind of change like that. That's what Jesus is seeing here, and in verse 25, we we sense here a sense of, uh, well, well, I don't know. Worship in spirit and in truth. I, I I don't know. But even in her confused response, she reveals something about her belief system. Look at this verse again. She says this. The woman said to him, "I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ." When He comes, He will tell us all things. We have to remember, I said this last week, but the Samaritans did not accept the whole of the Old Testament as Scripture. Only only the first five books of Moses that we call the the Pentateuch sometimes. Only, Only those books, the books of the law. So she is not, when she mentions a Messiah in verse 25, she's not waiting for a Messiah who would be David's, truer son who would sit on david's throne forever that's not the messiah that she's waiting for she's not waiting for isaiah's lamb led to the slaughter stricken for the transgression of his people she's not waiting for that messiah she's not waiting for isaiah's emmanuel god with us a son born of a virgin she had no interest in micah's bethlehem from whom would come forth one who would be ruler in israel She had no interest in those things. She has no connection with Jeremiah's promise of a new covenant or Ezekiel's promise of a a new heart. Instead, the Samaritans were waiting for someone that they would call Tahib. And it means restorer. They were waiting for a restorer. Now, to put it simply, as simply as I can, as best as we can tell today, the Samaritan people believed that what they would call the era of divine favor. The era of divine favor. Really, the one that had taken place under the leadership of Moses. That that era ended shortly after Moses' death. They believed that, that Israel's uh, religious uh, practices became corrupt and defiled during the time of the judges when every man did what was right in his own eyes. And, and frankly... They're not wrong about that. It did become very corrupt, although there was always a faithful remnant. They believed that God would raise up another prophet like Moses who would restore this era of divine favor. And again, on this point, they're they're not really wrong. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and verse 18 say this. Moses speaking in verse 15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Then in verse 18 God says the same thing. I will raise up for them a prophet like you Moses from among their brothers. I will <clears throat> excuse me, I will put in uh, my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so it's not wrong to apply those words to Jesus. In fact, it's it's very right to apply those words to Jesus. Jesus does those things, but but if that's Only who Jesus is, it's insufficient. See, they expected their tahib, their restorer, to be this kind of prophet teacher, as opposed to a a prophet king. That's why she says here, He will tell us all things. I know that Messiah tahib is coming. He will tell us all things. He will teach us. See, she has an insufficient view of Christ. Yet, Yet look at his response in verse 26. It's very simple, it's very direct, and to the point. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus is the prophet who will restore the era of divine favor. Jesus is the prophet teacher who will tell us all things. In fact, immediately following Jesus' resurrection... Walking on the road to Emmaus, what does he do to some disciples who don't understand who he is? Well, in Luke 24, verse 27, it tells us, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He taught them clearly. Remember these stories? These are all about me. These are all pointing to me, Jesus says. It surely sounds to me like He's doing exactly what she's expecting Tahib the restorer to do. But Jesus is so much more than a good prophetic teacher. In fact in Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 we read that he is actually a prophet, priest and king. Just listen to this greeting from Revelation 1. Every, every week when we start our worship services, I, I read a greeting uh, that we call the Apostolic Greeting. It's an apostle wrote this greeting, usually Paul. But every once in a while we see another one, and this one is written by John as he starts writing in the book of Revelation. He says this to the church, to us, Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. That's a prophet. The faithful witness. The firstborn of the dead, priest. And the ruler of kings on earth. He is prophet, priest, and king. But then it goes on and says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. This is from Revelation 1. Priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those that have pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen, John says. We could spend weeks just looking at those verses. And someday we will, Lord willing. But here we can see clearly that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. He's, he's even so much more than that. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's actually not just the king. He's the king of kings. Our view of Jesus often is just simply too small. Jesus' words... In verse 26 of John chapter 4, I who speak to you am He. This is, the, this is the point of this entire conversation. It's the climax of this story. It's what He set out to tell her the moment He and His disciples stepped foot in Samaria, where they had to go. Because this was His mission. This is Jesus' clear, straightforward announcement that He is the Messiah. The Christ. Do you know who he says that to first in the book of John? Clearly, a Samaritan woman who could not testify in court that he said these things, who had no standing in society. Not just any Samaritan woman, this Samaritan woman. He says this to her, and pronounces that he is the Messiah, the one that they've all been waiting for. He is the Christ. And he uses some careful language when he tells her this. He doesn't say, that's me. He doesn't say, I, I, I'm the one. He says, I who speak to you am he. In fact, in, um, there actually isn't the word he there. In Greek, when John writes this down, when Jesus spoke these words and John wrote them down, he didn't say the word he. That's actually put in later to help us to understand these things. And he's actually emphasizing the word I. So when he says, I who speak to you am he. So, so here's what it really should sound like. It should say, She would say this, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. I speak to you. I am. I speak to you. I am. The sentence that Jesus speaks here that John has written down in Greek, it's, it's actually the same as the Hebrew that is written down in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 6, in which God says, Therefore my people shall know my name, therefore in that day they shall know, God says, it is I who speak, here I am. So Jesus speaks to her in the style and using the words of God speaking. Of God's words. God's words in the Old Testament. In fact, one of the scriptures that she would accept. As being part of scripture. Is Exodus chapter 3. Verses 13 through 15. It's Moses at the burning bush. And Moses says to God in verse 13. Exodus 3 13, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them. The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me. What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I am. I am who I am. Yahweh. The self-revelation, the self-revealing that God had spoken to Moses at the burning bush, revealing who he was has now been spoken to a Samaritan woman at a well, getting a bucket of water. Think about that. Think about that. God has now shown himself to be I am to the woman at the well. But as we have seen, she still has an insufficient view of the Messiah. And so his response is both a revelation... It's also a correction. So much of what she and her people, the Samaritans, had believed was wrong or it was incomplete. She'd been waiting for a what, remember? You worship what you do not know, he says. We worship what we know. She had been waiting for a what, but now he was standing right here in front of her. And so he doesn't need to do anything more than to announce his presence. I who speak, I am. And after, after all of this conversation, a conversation that just seems to wander all over the place. We've spent, I think this is week number four, going through these verses, but this conversation has been everywhere. From the, the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans, to this idea that Jesus brings up of, of living water, to her promiscuous lifestyle, to Him treating her with dignity when no one else would, to eternal life, to the fatherhood of God, to the nature of true worship, to His self-revelation as the Messiah. After all of this, the disciples come back with lunch. Look at the next verse. Just then, His disciples came back. You can almost picture them as I was reading this. We went ahead and ordered a couple of dozen sliders... You guys are talking, Shh, sorry. If I were having this conversation with this woman, and had just gotten to the point of sharing the gospel. It just gotten to the gospel presentation and the disciples walked up at the very worst moment. I probably would have been maybe upset or, or subtly tried to get them to stay away for another couple of minutes. Just, just wait outside. But Jesus doesn't do any of that. He just leaves the statement hanging. I am. I who speak to you, I am. John gives his fellow disciples a little bit of credit here. Look at this verse 27 again. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or, why are you talking with her? He gives them a little bit of credit. They kept their mouths shut. This was amazing restraint for these guys, especially. Especially Peter, who had to have been there. I have to imagine, it's just an imagination, but I have to imagine Peter was eating at that moment and that's why he couldn't speak. He often had his foot in his mouth. He must have had a sandwich in there. But just look at this verse for a minute. There's actually an infinite number of things that they didn't say. (laughs) They didn't say these things. They also didn't say a lot of other things. I think John includes this verse. I think he points this out to to say what they were thinking. To show us that at least he was thinking this. This is what they wanted to say. And had they said what they were thinking, culturally speaking, they wouldn't have been out of line. Why are you talking to her? What's going on here? Yet for some reason, they kept quiet. And John explicitly tells us, they did not say these things. I want you to hang on to these next couple of verses, verses 28 to 30, because we're going we're to cover them when we look at the response to all of this. But I also want you to see the timeline here. The events of verse 28, 29, and 30 take place... At the exact same time as Jesus' exposition, as as what happens in verses 31 to 38. These things take place at the same time. So let's just read this again. In verse 28, so the woman left her water jar, went away into town, and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Eat. So these things happen at exactly the same moment. So in the, in the meantime, while she leaves in a rush, even leaves her water jar there, goes off to talk with the people in her town, and there is obviously a sense of excitement in what she is saying, the disciples are urging him to eat. Rabbi, eat. This is just simply what faithful disciples did. In those culture, in that days, a rabbi that would have disciples, the disciples would care for the well-being of their teacher all the way up till he died. And even they would take care of the funeral. They would take care of the teacher. This was a completely appropriate act. Lunch is here. Eat. Verse 32. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. This is a pretty characteristic response of Jesus. He does things like this often. He throws in a a metaphor that they don't see coming. He does so often and here in order to point out the bigger picture that they're missing. They've missed the significance of what has just happened and, and what is even currently happening in verses 28, 29, and 30 in town and on the way back from town as they're sitting there eating. They're missing all of this. See it in verse 33. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus is providing something far bigger. Samaritan woman missed it. Look back at verse 10. Jesus said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, You would have asked him, And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? For her, it was water, living water. For the disciples, it was his food. The irony is kind of thick in this. Jesus claims to have both water and food. and, and, And when he does so, the woman looks for his bucket. The disciples look for sandwich wrappers. I don't know. What do you mean you have food? And both have the inability to see him for who he really is, and also to see the provision that he is providing for what it really is. She sees him as a prophet. They see him as a rabbi. But he's the source of living water, he's the bread of life. Sometimes our view of Christ is just too small. Now let's give them a little bit more credit you remember back in chapter 1, Andrew in verse 41 of chapter 1 and then a little bit later in verse 49, Nathaniel. so two of the disciples have both confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, yet they still have an insufficient view of him and his mission. And, and this is so often us, right? We frequently only turn to God when we're desperate, when we need something, So often we treat Him like a genie in a bottle, right? We get three wishes or something like that. We ask Him to bless us instead of seeking to know Him and worship Him in spirit and in truth and to obey His commands. Sometimes we get Jesus confused with the Holy Spirit or the Father when we pray and we don't really, we reveal when we do that that we don't really know who we're talking to. But the good news is that Jesus still used this Samaritan woman. He's drawing the crowd to himself using her. He still used his disciples to accomplish his will. And so, of course, he also uses us. And the saying goes, we are just jars of clay, right? And now he gets on with the exposition. Look in verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say, there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. As he so often does, Jesus uses the misunderstanding over the food to move his argument along. He doesn't correct them straightforwardly. Of course, he's correcting them, but he doesn't say, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about sandwiches. I'm not talking about lunch. I'm talking about something bigger. He, he just simply moves his argument along. Verse 34 is really a strange statement in the midst of strange statements. But Jesus is is here referring to something specific. And although John doesn't tell us about this in this moment, Jesus has spoken of this type of thing before. In fact, when he had, he was actually speaking to to Satan himself during his temptation. And it's just a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let me read the whole paragraph from Deuteronomy that Jesus is referring to. It's verses 1 through 3. So Deuteronomy 8.1 says this, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus is telling him here that he is going to fulfill what the nation of Israel could not. They grumbled and complained about the manna. They thought with their stomachs, as the disciples are. God had commanded them, just a couple verses after that, after that statement, man shall not live by bread alone, but man shall live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In verse 6, just a few verses later, God says this, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and fearing Him. Jesus fulfilled God's law by keeping His commandments perfectly. He was perfectly obedient. And He lived. He was sustained. His food was to obey, to do the will of the Father who sent Him. Because He understood far better than anyone that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, Jesus is clear that, that He came to do God's will. That's why He came to earth. That's why He was born. He says those words, I came to do the will of Him who sent me. He says that in John 6, verse 38. He, he's clear that He always does God's will. John eight twenty-nine says that. He always does the will of the Father. And He's also clear that, that the work that He does is actually the work of God. In John chapter 10, verses 37 and 38, he will say this. He says, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So Jesus is saying here to his disciples, what he is saying is that there is more satisfaction There is greater sustenance in doing the Father's will than in any food that the disciples could offer Him. And really, all of Jesus' ministry is just a submission to and and a performance of, a doing of, the will of the one who sent Him. That's what keeps Him going. That doesn't mean He didn't have to eat, by the way. He did. But that's what keeps Him going, day in and day out. And it's a little surprising, it should be, that Jesus says he's come to accomplish, to finish, to complete God's work. It, isn't God's work already done? Wasn't it completed when he, when he rested after creation? Doesn't that mean that God was, his work was done? He sat down and rested? Yes. And then sin entered into the world and the work of redeeming a people for his own possession began. We've been following this thread in our adult Sunday school class as we've walked through Genesis, this thread of redemption from Adam to Seth to Noah to Shem to Abraham and ultimately to Jesus, the one who crushes the head of the serpent, the one who proclaims it is finished. He has accomplished God's will. And at the moment of Jesus' accomplishment of the work given to him by the Father, he defeated Satan. He made his children alive. He canceled our record of debt. Colossians chapter 2, 13 through 15. Paul will say it explicitly, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's what Jesus means here by accomplish his work, God's work. He has defeated Satan, the powers of evil, the spiritual forces at work, in the sons of disobedience. He has defeated sin. He has defeated death. He has set us free. But there's more. There's so much more. Jesus now turns from from His unique food, which is to do God's will as the unique Son of God, and, and He turns to the food of the disciples, all of the disciples, which is the will of God and the work of God that God has for us. Verse, verse 35. Notice in verse 34, he's talking about my food. And then in verse 35, he says, do, not, uh, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Essentially, don't wait until fall. Harvest is today. February 25, 2018. The harvest is ready. You can look out at the fields and see that the harvest is not ready. But Jesus is saying, open your eyes and see that the harvest is ready. Three times in verse 35, just in that one verse, Jesus tells them to use their eyes. He says, look or behold. Then he says, lift up your eyes. See. Of course, this is not a literal look out at the wheat field or the cornfield, or the bean field, or whatever field. It's not a literal look out at the field. Jesus is exhorting them to see the way that he sees, to have eyes to see, to look at people the way that he viewed this Samaritan woman, not as an enemy like most people would, not as someone to be shamed like most people would, not as someone to be avoided, but as a woman who needed a restorer, who needed a Messiah, a Tahib, who is so much more than just a Tahib. She needed a Savior. And Jesus is no less than a Savior. Our Savior. The Savior. Now, I just want to be a little bit clear. There may have been some literalness to this. They very well may have had something to look at as the townspeople, are walking towards them, and verse 30 tells us. So when he says, look and see, he may very well have pointed at those people coming toward him on the road. Because the people are approaching him, there's a bit of urgency in this conversation, but but we're going to talk about what happens when they get there next week. One more thing. Jesus has used this harvest metaphor Before as well. Jesus is a good preacher. He preaches his sermons more than once. Um, First look at verses 36 to 38. I want you to see this. He says in verse 36. Already the one who reaps. Is receiving wages. And gathering fruit for eternal life. So that the sower and reaper. May rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap. That for which you did not labor. Others have labored. And you have entered into their labor. Now, listen to Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. In Matthew chapter 9, we read this, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, "The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest." So clearly, this whole exposition here—it's about winning souls for Christ. It's about sharing the gospel, bringing people to the Savior. This is the harvest. And he never identifies, in this passage at least, he never identifies who are the sowers and who are the reapers, who are the harvesters. But in one of the parables that he told, another time he used this imagery, parable of the sower. In that parable, we're not going to turn there today, but in that parable... The one who spreads or sows the seed of God's word is clearly the one who proclaims the gospel, the one who tells others about Christ. Paul will pick up on this and he and he will explain it like this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verses 5 to 9, Paul will write this to kind of quell some controversy. He will say, Well, what then is Apollos, who was another preacher? What is Paul? sowing and reaping and harvesting. Look at verse 36 again. He says, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. What he is saying here is that the harvest is so ready, so plentiful, so white on the field, that the reaper is already seeing results. But even more than that, the sower and the reaper are rejoicing together. They're out in the field at the same time, laboring differently. Sower's planting seeds. The reaper is picking the crop, harvesting. Yet they're seeing the results together. They are united in what they are doing. This was even, This was even promised back in the Old Testament. This imagery of winning souls, some planting, some, as Paul says, watering, some bringing others to Christ. Amos chapter 9, verses 13, 14, and 15. uh, The book of Amos ends with this prophecy. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. The plowman, the one planting, will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land I have given to them, says the Lord your God. This reality of a crop so rich... That the work of the sower and the reaper overlap. That's what's happening here. That's the work that Amos says leads to a, a forever promised land. An eternity in the promised land. In their case, verse 37 tells us, Jesus has plowed up the ground. He has planted the seed. We will see next week that in this local sense, the Samaritan woman is plowing the ground when she goes running into town soon the disciples will see the harvest of their souls the disciples will see the harvest of the souls just read Acts chapter 2 and read about the harvest of the souls when 3,000 are added to their number in one day that's not the only time that happens the disciples are reapers and yet they, they plant they continue they continue Sowing and reaping are often done by different people. Parents, grandparents, Sunday school teachers, Billy Graham. Yet as verse 38 says, we enter into their labor. Some will be doing sowing. Some will be doing reaping. Most will be doing a little of both. Or to mix the metaphor up a little bit, Paul will say in First Corinthians 3 verse 10, He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Again, it's a different metaphor. It's a building now, but the truth behind it is the same. We're just building on a foundation laid by the apostles with Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Sometimes we sow. We plant the seeds of the gospel. Sometimes we water the seeds, as Paul will speak of. Sometimes, sometimes, praise be to God, we reap the seeds, the harvest, the harvest of souls. But this is all God's work. He gives the growth. Jesus calls us here to behold, to look, to see, to lift up our eyes, and then he sends us out into the labor. He says, I send you out into their labor. This is Christian ministry. As simple as that. Look and see. Sow, reap, water, plant, harvest. Look and see. Enter into their labor. This is the mission of the church. And we have to go into Samaria. Have to. We're called to. My prayer today is that that burden would lie heavy upon our hearts that we would sow the seeds of the gospel reap the seeds of the gospel the plant the harvest that's my prayer for us let's pray God I pray that we would lift up our eyes and see that we would behold the harvest is ripe white with harvest fields are white for harvest that we would enter into and continue to enter into. I pray that, Lord, in this church, so many are involved in this in so many different ways, sowing and reaping and even watering. Lord, I pray that we would not get discouraged. So often the the sowers are planting the seeds and, and it seems like a long time until they grow. And in the case of sharing the gospel, we... We often don't even ever see the results ourselves, different reapers come along. And so help us not to get discouraged with obedience to your commands to go and make disciples. But to be steadfast, to continue in this. To sow and reap that we might see your kingdom and your glory. Take root in the hearts of the people around us that we love and care for. Give us the words to say, Lord, that we might be able to share a reason for the hope that is within us. We acknowledge that we're not we're not Billy Graham. We're not great evangelists, and yet we know the truth. And so I pray, Lord, that we would make the most of those opportunities that we would see with the eyes of Christ as Christ looked at this woman and love her enough to share the gospel. Change our hearts, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name.